Today's show is sponsored by CloudZero. For software-driven companies focused on growing margins, CloudZero is the only cloud cost intelligence platform that puts engineering in control by connecting technical decisions to business results. By analyzing cloud services like AWS and Snowflake, CloudZero provides real-time cost insights that help you maximize margins. Engineering teams can answer critical questions like, who are my most expensive customers? How much does this specific feature cost our business? What's the cost impact of re-architecting this application? With cost anomaly alerts via Slack, product-specific data views, and granular engineering context that makes it easy to investigate any cost, CloudZero is your complete cloud cost intelligence platform, connecting the dots between high-level trends and individual line items. Join companies like Drift, Rabbit7, and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com cloudcast to get started today. That's cloudzero.com cloudcast. Cloudcast Media presents, from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is The Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to The Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from our massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and a very special Cloud News of the Week. Um, this might be a first. It is both Brian and I for Cloud News of the Week. Yeah, it's been a very long time since uh, we both did them. And we don't typically do those, but this is uh, this is a milestone show. We, uh, we are hitting show number 600. <laughs> uh, do you remember back when we did the very first show, where, where we did it from? What the original Massive Cloudcast Studio was? It was the uh, the broom closet at Cisco, basically, wasn't that's, it? That's right. We uh, we found an empty closet. Uh, it it was maybe the worst place in the world we could record because it was not only super echoey, but it had a really loud uh, air conditioner that kept kicking on. So we uh, we've improved that. Um, I don't know that we've necessarily improved, you know, how, how much we contribute to the show. But uh, <laughs> six hundred shows, man, that's a long, long time. It's our twelfth year of doing this, so that's very yeah. cool and. Thank you to everybody who listens. Thanks to everybody who you know gives us a few minutes every week. We appreciate it. Oh, and by the way, too, I, I actually tried to go back and find it once upon a time because I know it was in our, I think it was maybe in our one of our Twitter feeds, but I, I, I don't, I just think it was lost to time. But there actually was a picture of the massive Cloudcast Studio at Cisco once upon a time, but I, I can't find it anymore. So yeah, it's somewhere. It's somewhere, somewhere. And it's uh, been renovated. It's it's a different room now. Like I don't even know what it is. So the the, the massive studio technically does not exist anymore. It's, right. it, it, it only exists virtually in our hearts. That's right. Our hearts and minds. Uh, although it, <laughs> it, is one of the, it is one of the most popular questions that we get from people is where are the studios and what do they look like? And uh, they are, the, you know, they, they are the equivalent of what you would expect from people, you know, typical podcasters from their mom's basement kind of thing. So that's, that's exactly what yep. it is. Yep. Well, the, only thing that, the only thing that has increased is the amount of noise insulation in my office over yeah, the years mine too. i feel like the longer we've done the show the more sound panels i've put up but other than that yeah we've that that, that uh, used to be the number one uh number one complaint of the show and i think we've i think we've gotten we've gotten pretty good at that part that's the one part of the show i think we've gotten pretty good at sound <laughs> sound quality well listen yep. we're gonna we're gonna kind of use this uh announcement as our as our cloud news of the week i don't think uh there wasn't there's was a few little tidbits there in the show notes if you want to go take a look at them but not a whole lot of cloud news of the week so we'll We'll just use the uh, you know eight hundred or six hundred show celebration as the, as the cloud news of the week, man. Congratulations to you for for making it six hundred shows. Yeah, no, and and it's funny too. The other thing we talked about because I think it kind of crept up on us. Like a, you know, I remember one hundred was super big and two hundred was super big, and even like oh, we got a plan for five hundred. 
And then all of a sudden, I think you and I a couple weeks ago were like, oh, crap, I think the 600 show's coming up soon, isn't it? <laughs> so maybe we're getting jaded. <laughs> well, I think, I think it snuck up on us because we started doing two shows a week. And it, it, usually it was every couple of years, and now it snuck up on us like in a year. So, yeah. Yeah. But anyways, uh, so again, thanks to everybody. Uh, you know, we, if you've been listening for a while, we'd love to know maybe what, what show you started on. If anybody's ever gotten close to 400 or 500 shows or 600 shows, we'd love to hear about that as well. So um, you've got an awesome guest this week. Uh, we, we, we went back into our, you know, kind of the, the, uh, the Hall of Fame, I guess, of, of guests that we have. Uh, you've got an awesome show this week. I'm excited to, to listen to it. I didn't get a chance to be on it, but uh, it's going to be a fun one. Yeah, yeah. So coming up right after the break, we will have uh, Jesse Proudman talking about crypto and his latest uh, crypto venture that he's developed over the last couple of years. And for those that don't remember Jesse, he was on the podcast a number of years ago, back in our OpenStack days. <laughs> and and he was he was of Blue Box fame back in the day. Blue Box got bought by IBM, um, and then he kind of went off and did his next thing. And so we're talking to him about, about the next thing. Yeah, so he's been there since we did infrastructure and, and has, has expanded his wings since then. So excited to have Jesse on next. Well, man, here's to, uh, here's to 700. Here's hopefully we get there, get there sooner than later. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And, uh, let's get on to the show. Still using SSH keys, RDP logins, and database credentials? It's time to access your infrastructure like it's no longer 1999. StrongDM is the only modern infrastructure access platform. It creates a seamless, secure, and observable air gap between your staff and the critical infrastructure that powers your company. Instantly revoke access to every database, Kubernetes cluster, or server with a click. Automatically log every query, SSH, and kube control command to know who did what, when, and where across your stack. Illuminate credentials from end-user workflows to deploy access that's zero trust and least privilege by default. Trust it by your peers at Peloton, SoFi, Yext, and Chime. StrongDM is the only way to deploy secure access controls in a way folks love to use. But who believes an ad? Check it out for yourself with a no BS demo. Sign up at www.strongdm.com slash get dash a dash demo. Today's episode of the Cloudcast is sponsored by Datadog, a real-time monitoring platform that unifies metrics, traces, and logs into one tightly integrated platform. Datadog APM empowers developer teams to identify anomalies, resolve issues, and improve application performance. Begin collecting stack traces, visualizing them as flame graphs, organizing them into profile types such as CPU, I.O., and more. Teams can search for specific profiles, correlate them with distributed traces, and identify slow or underperforming code for analysis and optimization. Plus, with Datadog APM Live Search, you can perform searches across the full stream of ingested traces generated by your application over the last 15 minutes. Try Datadog APM free with a 14-day trial, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Visit datadog.com APM cloudcast to get started. That's datadog.com slash APM dash cloudcast. And we're back. And this week we are going to continue something we've talked about a couple times over the years, and that's crypto. Um, but one of the big things with crypto is the barrier to entry. And quite frankly, there's so much noise in this space as well. So 
we actually went back to Cloudcast alum. Uh, we have Jesse Proudman, Makara co-founder and CEO. So Jesse, first of all, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Glad to be back. And, and, and for those that maybe weren't around because it actually has been a number of years, we've chatted multiple times uh, in the past, but most recently was 2018. And that was with, and we'll have to clarify this a little bit, your first crypto startup, Strix Leviathan. Um, and for those that maybe haven't heard of you before or don't know your background, can you give everyone a, a quick intro and a little bit on your background? Yeah, absolutely. So lifelong entrepreneur, last company I started in 2003, it was a company called Blue Box, ultimately became a, a cloud computing firm, and raised about $22 million in venture, and ultimately was acquired by IBM in June of 2015 to take our private cloud as a service product, a, power, a product powered by OpenStack, and use that uh, to, to bring a, a breadth of IBM products to market. Spent about two and a half years at IBM after the acquisition, first year and a half as a distinguished engineer integrating the product inside of the, the broader IBM cloud ecosystem. And then the last year I was there, effectively over 2017, I moved over as an entrepreneur in residence working with IBM Ventures. And in that role, my job was to focus effectively as a subject matter expert on the blockchain space. So we were going to launch an accelerator for startups and my domain area for that accelerator was specifically going to be on, on blockchain and, and crypto. So over the last sort of major market cycle, my job was effectively to be paid to understand what was happening in the landscape, which was a really fun opportunity. IBM at the end of that year uh, determined that there was no budget for that uh, priority. And I decided I wanted to get back to my entrepreneurial roots and had a thesis around applicability of, of algorithmic trading uh, within the crypto space and, and really the observation that this asset class, as, as you mentioned, is complicated and rather nascent and that institutional software or institutional trading technology was, was largely absent. And it felt like there was an opportunity to build uh, that software. Uh, and so that's what we did. We, we started Strix building a uh, institutional portfolio management system. And we used that to run a hedge fund uh, over the last four years. Uh, and then in August of 20, uh, came to the recognition that there was an opportunity to build uh, the Makara business, which we'll, we'll talk about here more in a moment. Um, and so we spun that business out at the beginning of 21. And here we are uh, a little bit uh, more than a year later uh, with our, our acquisition by Betterment. Nice, nice. Yeah. And and I'll say this too. So, so you know, we, uh, before we hit record, we were talking about the last time we saw each other in person was was at a, a joint conference in, in somewhere in the 2018 timeframe, and you were just getting the the Strix business going. And yeah, but my I don't even know that I, I I told you this, but my vision of you was like every second you weren't in sessions, you were like sitting in the hall hunched over your laptop, like furiously crunching away. Like it was the most startup thing I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> and now everyone has heard of crypto by now, or most everyone is certainly our listeners. And, and, and probably more importantly, I feel like everyone has an opinion on it these days for better or worse. And we'll get into all of that, but what made you kind of get started in this space and like you kind of said okay you started working on blockchain for you know at IBM but what made you kind of you know really spin off this first business and then um tell everyone a little bit of why that then turned into another business as well yeah absolutely i think this whole asset class to me it's just so fascinating and you said it's it's a polarizing 
set of technologies and, and a polarizing asset class. Um, but as I've spent my time really getting to, to understand what's happening here, I've come to recognize that by far and by far and large, this is an opportunity for sort of everyday investors or, or anyone to participate in the earliest stages of a, a massive technology revolution in a way that most folks have been excluded from elsewhere. So we think about our sort of the investing reality, people who want to participate in early stage tech startups as a, an angel investor or a venture investor because of the accreditation laws or because of access, they're, they're largely excluded. And uh, same, same thing with public markets, sort of the, the way IPOs work, the sort of the, the general public is kept out in, until very late in the process. And yet here, this felt like a, a, an asset class where people could get involved in sort of whatever stage uh, they felt interested in, in, in a particular project or, or technology. And it also felt to me like a, a frontier market where sort of many of the rules and regulations are still being sort of created on, on the fly to some extent. And, and the, the regulation is largely opaque. It's very confusing sort of what's, what's happening here. And um, as a result of that, you can end up with uh, a lot of sort of unscrupulous actors taking advantage of those who are investing. And on top of all that, the, the asset class moves so fast. You know, I, I remember at Blue Box, one of the things that really got me excited and, and got me to work every day was sort of the, the pace of innovation happening within the cloud space. Like every day there was something new uh, being launched or, or sort of some different way to, to solve a, a technology challenge. And here it's, it's exactly the same thing, except it's happening with such breadth and depth that it's, it's near impossible sort of any individual to track the entire scope of, of what's going on. And so sort of knowing, knowing those facts, I came to recognize that for the vast majority of investors, this asset class just became unapproachable. It was intimidating, it's complicated, it's confusing. And even for folks who, who want to participate, who are excited by what's happening here, if you didn't have time and, and energy to go spend doing research to understand this landscape, um, it, it really became almost impossible to participate. And with that recognition, we sort of said, okay, how, how can that be solved? There are hedge funds that sort of solve that for accredited or qualified investors. And so sort of the those who already have, uh, those who are already rich have access to these, these products that otherwise other folks don't. But for everybody else, there, there weren't good products. Like there weren't mutual funds or ETFs uh, that provided diversified exposure to this asset class in a way that allowed somebody who was short on time to really participate. And that kind of was the, the genesis idea for Makara. How could we, how could we solve the, absence of these mutual funds? How could we provide diversified long-term investment uh, capabilities to, to the broader investing public and, and really strip away a lot of kind of the, uh, the aura of these frontier markets to make them feel safer, to make them feel like more of a, a regular investing experience? And I'll add this, Jesse, as well. In full disclosure, I, I have an account with Makara. Um, and I will simply kind of double down on exactly what you were talking about. I kind of followed crypto from the sidelines for for a long time, but I was always a little bit like, well, I'm not exactly sure how you get going. And it just seemed like a huge, huge barrier to entry. 
Um, and, and when you came out with this, I was a little bit like, oh, okay, you know, I get that, right? There was a much lower, lower barrier to entry, but also it may probably for you, and this is the question of, was it then hard to stand out? Because I'm sure there's common misconceptions. There's common objections that you run across in the crypto space every single day. And in the, and when I say that, it's twofold, right? The super, super technical folks might have something, but then also like your mom and dad <laughs> may have a very, very different viewpoint on all of this. How did you kind of work through all of those misconceptions and objections? Yeah, well, fortunately now my mom has an account, so I succeeded somewhere. Um, <laughs> you, you know, I think the, the real observation we had, like the, there wasn't, a good product in market targeting sort of these these new market participants. If you have been investing in this space, you, you've probably invested via an exchange and all the exchanges are arguably the same. You, you sign up, you go through this KYC process, and then you're presented a list of assets with peculiar names that you don't understand anything about. And you're given sort of this complicated trading interface and 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 you're you're told to sort of, you know, go invest. Like that's not an investing experience. It's too complicated for, for most folks. And, and it also lends, I think, people to, to sort of, they, they end up in this this sort of coin selection or, or almost penny stock picking mentality, uh, which I, I don't think ultimately benefits folks. Uh, you know, I think about this asset class, much like I think about angel investing, where a, a proper investment should involve making many bets across a variety of, of assets. Some of those will succeed. Some of those will fail. Um, and hopefully a number of those can be wildly successful. And it's sort of that combination that makes for a compelling portfolio. I mean, it's the diversification argument, but that's not, that wasn't an option for people up until we, we launched Makara. Uh, you were forced to either go to these exchanges, you were forced to buy sort of the, the exchange traded trust products, products like uh, those offered by, by Grayscale or Bitwise. And, and there wasn't sort of this, this middle, uh, middle ground where somebody could actually own the underlying assets, but do it in a way that, that was diversified and, and sort of managed by a third party. And so that, that hole in the market, that's exactly what went to go solve with Makara and what we heard from our early customers uh, is that they've been looking exactly for that. People, people have been wanting this type of product um, for, for years and it sort of was, was the right time for us, both from a technology perspective with the service providers available in the market, with the technology we built, and then just from a public interest perspective uh, to, to have this product ready and available to folks. And let's, let's maybe, so I don't, I don't want to make this like a, a crypto 101 show. Um, but I do want to ask, um, you know, as I was kind of digging into, to some of these things, you get all these different terms and like there's layer zero, layer one, layer two, there's, um, uh, you know, you, you hear Bitcoin and you hear Ethereum and you hear Solana and Avalanche and Cosmos and all these other, like to your point, all, there's a million and one tokens out there. Does it matter? <laughs> and, and, you know, like I know, like. I know just because I've been doing some research on it. Yeah, there's a very fundamental difference between what is Bitcoin and what is Ethereum and what are they going to serve and their purposes in the market. But again, does it matter to the average person? Yeah, I, I think it should. And I, and I, and I think it should because at, at the end of the day, people are participating here in, in sort of this technological revolution. 
And there are many different parts to it. Like this is this asset class has moved beyond just being about Bitcoin to now where there are true sort of them thematic sectors um, that may pique people's interest in, in different ways. And that's one of the things that, that we really tried to set out when we designed our, our offerings. So the, the Makara product is revolves around this concept of a basket. And a basket is a selection of assets and a allocation criteria. And in, in doing that, we came to the recognition that people invest here for, for many different reasons. Some people invest because the gains are compelling and they just want to participate in what they see as to be an up and coming space. Some people invest because they're interested in a specific subsegment uh, of what's happening here. So maybe this notion of decentralized finance and sort of disintermediating banks and, and lenders is really compelling and they want to participate in that sector uh, of the broader asset class. Maybe this whole metaverse concept is, is really interesting to people and the, the concept of pay to earn gaming or digital land or uh, that that whole emerging world being part of something sort of net new is is the most compelling to people. Or maybe it's just being part of the underlying platform. Um, sort of Web3 has now been, been recoined as, as kind of the, the broader description of what's happening in crypto. But if you think about sort of the, the uh, picks and shovels, the components that make up uh, the infrastructure required to support this asset class, like maybe that's where your interest is. And so having the ability for people to deploy their capital where uh, in, into an area that is most compelling and, and most interesting to them really felt important beyond just saying, hey, it's it's crypto, period. The other thing that I think is interesting is, is just thinking about kind of the notion of, of large cap or small cap inequities to what's happening in, in crypto. And so there's many people that will disappoint to Bitcoin and say, well, you should just buy that and, and that'll be your your investment in the asset class. And I think that's that can be a fine strategy for many people. Certainly Bitcoin has many systemic advantages by being first and, and the largest uh, asset in this asset class. But that's also, you know, to some extent, a, a challenge uh, to the asset and particularly in, in as it relates to sort of prospective gains uh, that, that can be had. So, uh, you know, if, if you're number one, sort of the, the only place to go is is down uh, to some extent from a, a dominance perspective. Uh, and as we think about the opportunity to make uh, sort of outsized gains, because I think ultimately people are investing here because it's, again, an emerging asset class and as a result of that, that there is belief that uh, sort of the, the return on the investments can um, be significantly greater uh, with significantly greater risk than uh, sort of traditional investments. Uh, but if that's your if that's your thesis, then you sort of have to diversify across the asset class to be able to participate in some of the smaller market cap assets that may appreciate faster than than the largest. Uh, and so I do think it matters. I think it matters because people are curious about different things. I think it matters because the return profiles based on what you buy can be very different. I think it matters because some of these projects will fail. Some of these, not, not everything here will succeed. And um, it's sort of picking those winners and losers can, can be quite a challenge. And at the end of the day, this is all to some extent a, a large experiment. It's all software. And as folks, you know, many of the listeners here have been involved in, in software in many different ways. And we, we all come to recognize that uh, software is written by humans and it's it make, contains errors. And so who who knows sort of what happens to any of these individual assets um, in, in the future. Uh, so to that, with that perspective, kind of this diversification approach, being able to, to spread your bets around, I think is, is one of the best ways to, to gain exposure to the asset class. Yep, yep. 
Now, Jesse, let, let me add this as maybe a, and, and by the way, too, for the listeners that are out there, the, 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 the last podcast we did with you was um, number 339, and that's when we were talking about Strix Leviathan. But some folks may not have been listening back that far. Tell everyone a little bit about where did Strix start and end, and where does Makara start and end, and is there overlaps? And, like, is it safe to say, like, Strix is the back end and Makara is the front end? Like, how would you describe the interrelationship? Yeah, so two two totally separate companies. And Makara was a spin out from Strix. So we started Strix in 2018 when the regulatory environment for this asset class was uh, even more opaque than it, it is today. And, and the objective there was to build institutional software that would allow somebody trying to trade a, a sophisticated portfolio um, the ability to actually do that. You think about traditional equities and the markets just kind of work, like all the tools and technologies to go execute orders or uh, to reconcile all your trades, to, to uh, match those up with the administrator of your portfolio. Like all of that infrastructure exists and is functional. Um, and in 2018, none of that existed here. Um, and even in, in 2022 now, the infrastructure is better, but it's still not where uh, it should be for sort of the, the state of the industry I mean, it's nowhere clear, close to what's, uh, what it looks like in traditional equity. So we started off building that, that underlying infrastructure. That includes things like portfolio management. Uh, it includes algorithms to actually trade these markets uh, systematically. It includes trade execution, order management, reconciliation, settlement, reporting. So everything that you need to actually run a sophisticated trading operation or, or ultimately a hedge fund was built into this software. And over the last four years... Strix Leviathan used that software to, to ultimately run and operate a hedge fund uh, with, with external LPs. And that hedge fund is run as a 3C7 fund, which means it is accessible only to qualified purchasers. Uh, so that is investors with uh, individual investors with 5 million in investable assets and up or institutions with 25 million in investable assets and up. And that designation operating as a 3C7 fund was one of the ways given the opaque regulatory environment that we were able to actually set up and, and operate that business um, with sort of a, a regulatory first mindset. And that's one of the, the keys for us is, is we've thought about building these businesses over the last four years. Like we've, we've always gone at this trying to do things with sort of this regulatory centric point of view that so much of this asset class and industry really has tried to skirt regulation. And I understand why it's because the regulation has been opaque for many folks who are early, it was very unfriendly. And, uh, you know, to, to some extent, people become sacrificial lambs as, as sort of new regulation uh, is identified. I mean, you look at the, the BlockFi settlement here lately, uh, $100 million settlement paid to the, the SEC and to states. We've now got more clear perspective on what can and cannot be done, but it, it costs BlockFi $100 million. And, you know, many institutions that would be they'd be put out of business with, with that type of settlement. So it's been a challenge in, in this industry to kind of operate with that mindset, but that, that's been our objective. As we went and operated that business over the next four years, we, we came to build that belief that there needed to be a better solution, not just for qualified purchasers, for, for sort of these wealthy investors, but for, for everybody. And so that's uh, where we sort of set out to figure out what was the regulatory footprint um, that, that we could utilize to solve for that. And the concept of an SEC registered investment advisor, effectively an, an entity uh, regulated by the SEC, whose objective is to be able to provide investment advice on behalf of clients, um, that became 
the vehicle that, that we believed was the, the best way to sort of bring this product to market. And that became the vehicle that, that we built Macar on the back of. So at the beginning of 21, we split Macar out as a separate product. With that, we were able to leverage a lot of that institutional technology that we built um, on the strict side. So all the portfolio management capabilities and, and tooling, that is what powers the underlying baskets that, that exist on Macara. And, but we're able to sort of take that technology and use it in, in, for another use case uh, to be able to, to bring this, this concept of sort of mutual funds or ETFs uh, to, to the broader market. Nice. Thanks for that, Jesse. Um, that's super helpful. And, and I'll take it one step further as well. So, and then you did mention it, but Makara has this, this idea of, of baskets, right. Or, or categories. Um, how, how do you decide on groupings and when, and how do you introduce new baskets? Is, is it more of, um, you know, something in the software is telling you there's a trend or is it customers coming to you and saying, we want to go invest in this or is it a little bit of, of everything? Yeah, it is a little bit of everything. And, and this has been one of our, our challenges. So as a, uh, as a registered investment advisor, there is something called the, the custody rule. And that requires that investment advisors custody their client capital with an entity that's considered a qualified custodian. So effectively, Macara doesn't actually hold client funds. Macara creates accounts at a qualified custodian, and we've partnered with uh, an entity named called Gemini uh, to, to act in that capacity. And that custodian holds uh, those funds on, on behalf of the client. Uh, and then Macara has the ability to, to trade uh, effectively on, on behalf of the client with, with their capital. So that is a, a legal requirement to operate as a registered investment advisor. You, you cannot be an RIA and keep funds uh, elsewhere. And so when we, we went to build Makara, we, we looked at the market and there were only three providers that, that we felt would actually meet that definition and had the technical capabilities required to actually deliver this type of product. And we ultimately settled on Gemini given its uh, sort of position in the market, its regulatory stance uh, and its capabilities. As a result of that, that means the assets that we can include in Makara baskets are constrained to the assets that are supported by that qualified custodian. So that's sort of our, our first limiting factor. So you take the 17,000 different digital assets that exist today and you distill them down to the, the now, I think it's 80-ish or so, plus or minus five assets that, that Gemini supports. So we can we can use that original 75 or, or now 75 as the uh, the the world of tokens that uh, or assets that, that we can select from. From there, we, we put together sort of this selection criteria and one of the things that I'm really excited about by Betterment is, is their history of expertise building these por portfolios. Uh, they are have already and will continue to lend a significant amount of, of thought uh, and experience in sort of this, this market's selection criteria. And, but, but we sort of as independent Makara took, took these markets and we looked at a number of things. One, we looked at the individual projects and sort of their, their ability to stand alone as a, an actual technology offering. There, it, was there enough volume globally to make that an investable asset? Was there enough liquidity on Gemini to make that an investable asset? And um, so doing, doing this filter around uh, effective technical quality um, or, or quantitative quality of, of the underlying liquidity in the market. And, and then from there, sort of thinking through the, the various sectors uh, that existed in the market with the remaining assets that, that we have left once we've gone through all those filters. A lot of the baskets that we have on platform today, they, they are customer uh, driven by customer demand. So we have a wonderful community that, that shares their perspective 
um, and their interests. And, and that's helped us shape sort of these, these various pieces. Um, and the other piece that we really thought about is, is this notion of uh, sort of active versus passive uh, baskets. So all of the offerings we have on platform today are, are passive indexes. You can think of them sort of like the, you know, direct indexing of an S&P equivalent where our clients are, are holding the underlying asset uh, that is a, a composition of sort of a, a broad uh, market selection criteria, but, th but there's not sort of a, an active strategy. They're not traded in and out of based on different, uh, different indicators or technicals of, of the markets. One of the things that we have seen significant demand for from clients is, is a more actively traded basket, one where uh, sort of what is being seen in the market can help influence the, the holdings uh, of the underlying assets. And that's one of the neat things because of the evolution of Makara off of the Strix platform that we have the capability uh, to, to build and, and bring to market over the, the, the future. So uh, as we've thought about baskets, it's not just sort of what is the composition of markets that go in, but it's it's also this thought of like, how does these how do these baskets actually function and sort of what capabilities can we bring in the future that folks otherwise wouldn't have access to as an independent investor? Ah, uh, okay, okay. Super helpful. All right. So Jesse, we're, we're kind of at time here. So I'll ask one last question. This is more just general in the industry because there is so much interest in this space and because, um, you know, the, the attraction of it being digital assets and being, you know, money <laughs> for, a, for a lot of folks out there, because of that, there's a lot of interest, but there's also a lot of, of people out there giving bad advice and just trying to make a quick buck. You know, the amount of people I've seen out there of like, hey, be a millionaire like me. And oh, by the way, buy my system, you know. Yep. Um, <laughs> and so like- I, I, Frontier I feel, markets. Right. And, <laughs> and, and, and so it's so, there's so much signal and noise. And, you know, like I'll say this, you know, a podcast, right? I, I, I went through a bunch of the podcasts and it took me a while till I found some podcasts that were truly like, okay, this is good information. I'm learning here and they're not trying to sell me something or there's not kind of some ulterior motive on this. So you obviously have been at this, uh, been at this a pretty long time, right? So if, if somebody is brand new to this space and wanted to get started from an education standpoint, where do they go? Is it, do they go to Twitter? Like how do people dig in and learn these days? That is probably the most challenging component of, of this whole asset class. And it, it's a function of the fact that these are frontier markets and, and there is the opportunity for, for folks to sort of to, to build their audience and, and to, as a function of that, sort of impact price of specific assets and benefit economically. Um, it's also the reality that to some extent, these become almost religious in nature to, to people. Like they, they become very affiliated with specific assets and you'll hear the term sort of Bitcoin maximalist or an ETH maxi, people that, that believe sort of their asset is the end all be all uh, asset to hold and that, that nothing else matters. And sort of cutting through that that noise to, to get down to sort of the clean underlying information can, can be really challenging. There are a number of, of really well done books um, and many of them were written sort of in the, in the 1718 uh, cycle. Um, and, and I can get you some uh, of these links that you can put in, in the podcast notes yep. uh, that, that go into sort of the, the genesis of this asset class, or the genesis of Bitcoin, um, how money got free is, is one of my favorites. Uh, but starting there, I think, can be really helpful. Like getting off of the internet and getting into actual published material uh, can can go a really long way uh, to, to getting 
to reducing that signal to noise ratio. Uh, Jameson Lopp is, is another great resource. He's a, a gentleman, longtime Bitcoin advocate, but he's built this phenomenal, very simple website with, with a bunch of educational material and links um, that, that help provide sort of some foundational understanding. Uh, and then that's been a big part of what we're, we're trying to do at, at Macar. And we've got a lot more work we can do this year with, with Betterment around the material itself uh, that, that we're producing and trying to, to get sort of easy to digest simple content that everyday humans can understand. Like there's not a lot of it out there, particularly as, as you mentioning in the podcast or in the sort of the YouTube uh, content space uh, that, that, that isn't, uh, to some extent, toxic or, or, or difficult to listen to. Um, so, so our desire is to spend a, a bunch of energy there, but kind of getting off of the internet, getting off of Twitter, getting out of Telegram and, and into sort of the the real world of published materials that I think can be one of the, the best first steps. Yeah, yeah. And just get out of that everyone wants to be an influencer mentality, right? And the, the other thing that's really important here, and I think it goes to that content piece, is, is our perspective is that this is about investing for the long term. This is not about a get rich screen. This is not about quickly becoming a millionaire. This is about participating in sort of this, this net new technology uh, and technology innovation. And if you look at the, the history of this asset class, as a result of that, you, you experience incredible volatility. But if you can zoom out far enough and just think about this as a very long term investment and approach it that way, uh, then sort of a, a lot of the individual asset selection, a lot of uh, sort of all of the, the news and headlines that, that you see become irrelevant. Um, and the fact that you're just sort of participating here for the long run, uh, in the same way that you may make an S&P investment for the long run, uh, as long as you are res- uh, investing responsibly and, and it's part of your broader portfolio, you're not like in no way do we make uh, any assertion that you should put a significant percentage of your net worth in this asset class if she treated like sort of any other alternative asset in your, your broader portfolio and, and, be part of a diversified investing experience, but doing so, I think, gives you this asymmetrical uh, return potential um, that that otherwise can be hard to find elsewhere. So, that long-term perspective, I think, becomes really key, and sort of ignore everybody else that, that's pushing for this notion of uh, sort of get rich now. Yeah. No, that's that's a perfect summary and a, and a perfect place to stop. So, so Jesse, thank you very much for your time uh, this week. And on behalf of Brian, who wasn't able to make it, and, and myself, uh, everyone that out there, thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. And, and also, thank you for telling a friend uh, as well. The, the podcast um, is uh, still continuing to grow and still uh, growing very, very nicely. And we certainly have you. Uh, to thank for that. And so uh, I'm going to sign off for this week and we will talk to everyone next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 